Welcome back to the 10 Blocks Podcast. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. I'm joined right now by Ralph Manguel, who's a contributing editor to the magazine and a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. About two weeks ago, Ralph had a great opportunity to interview NYPD Commissioner Dermot Shea about some of the policy shifts in the state and city of New York, which have had an impact on everything from pretrial detention, enforcement tactics, prosecution of minor and serious offenses, and, and other developments. We'll play a portion of that very interesting conversation on the podcast today. Before we do that, we wanted to get some thoughts and reflections from Ralph, but first, let's uh, go through a few important announcements. As some of our listeners might have noticed, the Manhattan Institute and City Journal have been hosting a ton of live stream discussions in place of our usual in-person events, which we've had to cancel because of the pandemic. Since we launched our event cast series back in May, we've hosted a sitting state governor, a U.S. senator, and many, many other great guests on a variety of topics. Thursday this week, uh, that's September 10th, I'll be interviewing Heather McDonald to talk about her recent work and her experience with social media censorship uh, and other topics. Next Thursday, September 17th, Edward Glazer, a fellow at the Manhattan Institute, a professor at Harvard, and a longtime contributing editor at City Journal, will deliver his annual James Q. Wilson lecture, where he'll address the broad implications of the COVID-19 pandemic on city life in America. You can find all of our events and register ahead of time by visiting the events section of the Manhattan Institute's website. And if you would like to watch some of these past interviews, including the one you'll be listening uh, to in part on today's podcast, be sure to subscribe to the Manhattan Institute's YouTube channel. Uh, Ralph, is there something you'd like to say really to set the context for this interview uh, with Commissioner Shea? Yeah, Brian, thanks. Um, you know, when we first invited uh, Commissioner Shea to do this event, it was you know before the pandemic had, had sort of taken effect, and um, it was shortly after he was appointed. Um, and right around that time, I had written a piece for uh, the website for cityjournal.com, or, or, or .org, sorry, um, about you know, how he was taking office in a very different context from his predecessors in recent history. Um, you know, for a long time, uh, there was a level of coherence within our criminal justice system such that the police department was seen as a natural partner to prosecutors' offices who were seen as a natural partner to the Department of Corrections. And it was, you know, sort of one system working toward a, a shared goal. Um, and I think that we're seeing a lot less of that now. Uh, given so many of the criminal justice reforms that have been enacted. And I, I, I wrote basically that that was going to uh, need to adjust how uh, Commissioner Shea did his job and how uh, we sort of uh, analyzed his, his success. And so, you know, when he finally was able to, uh, you know, to do the event uh, after things had calmed down, New York was really in the middle of what a lot of people uh, had predicted um, as these reforms started to take effect, which was, you know, a, a pretty sustained crime wave, one that's, you know, been uh, crowned by by shootings and and homicides that have that have jumped up across the city, um, but probably more so than anywhere else in in the borough of Brooklyn, where uh, just this this past Labor Day weekend, 
a, a six-year-old boy uh, was wounded during the uh, Gervais uh, celebrations. And, um, you know, this it, it took place in the, the 77th precinct, uh, which is covers Crown Heights. That precinct has seen a, a murder increase of 114% year over year, a shootings increase of 156%. And, uh, you know, just had a piece... Uh, uh, for the website, just kind of detailing how there really are kind of two distinct New Yorks. And I think Commissioner Shea's conversation did a really good job of sort of explaining what that's like um, and, and painting that picture. We you know, sort of started off with his career in the Bronx and, and sort of took that through the present day. And, and he was very candid in discussing the role that some of these reform efforts might be playing in, in driving crime and the need to find real balance. Thanks, Ralph. Uh, It's a good setup for this very interesting interview with Commissioner Shea. Thanks again. I want to start by going back 30 years, uh, when New York City was in the middle of its bloodiest year ever, one that would end with 2,262 murders. Now that year, 1990, also ended with robberies, burglaries, and grand larcenies, all breaking six figures. Now our guest today, Commissioner Dermot Shea, joined the NYPD just a few months later in April of 1991, when he was assigned to the 4-6 precinct in the Bronx. Now in 1990, the 4-6 saw 82 murders, which for context is just two fewer than the 84 that occurred in the entire borough of the Bronx last year. Now what followed was a prodigious climb through the department's ranks, an impressive career whose upward trajectory was matched only by the impressive downward trajectory of the city's violent crime through 2019, which is when he was named the 44th commissioner of the New York City Police Department. Now, I'm a betting man, and so I'd confidently wager that those two trend lines are not unrelated, which is why I'm so grateful that he agreed to share his perspective on such important issues with us all today. So I hope all of you at home will give us a warm virtual welcome to our guest of honor, Commissioner Shea. Thank you so much for being here. Raphael, thank you. Thank you for having me. The honor is mine. I look forward to a, uh, you know, a, a spirited conversation today about uh, something that I'm, I'm quite proud of in the work of the men and women of this department and New York City overall. So I look forward to it. Well, fantastic. Let's let's jump right in. So uh, I led into your introduction by highlighting some of the crime numbers uh, from the early 1990s, in part because I, I think a lot of people have either forgotten what what it was like back then, um, or or they just weren't around to see you know what the bad old days were like. And so I was hoping that you can start us off by kind of just telling us a little bit about what the Bronx and the city more broadly was like when you first got onto the job, um, and and what are some of the kind of more notable similarities and differences that you think uh, cops of the beat are dealing with today. Yeah, so I came on in April of 1991, and as you said, I got out of the police academy at the end of, uh, I think it was October of 1991, and was stationed to uh, the Highbridge section of the Bronx. So if you're familiar with the Bronx, it's a little bit north of Yankee Stadium there. And it was an area, one square mile, I think there was 90 murders in 1991 in that square mile. Um, yeah, it's, it's unbelievable when you think about it in today's terms. And um, there really is, Raphael, there's really no comparison in terms of what the street looked like. It was um, just complete poverty. Burned out buildings were still uh, quite frequent. Um, garbage piled up on the streets. Uh, it was it was a time when there was so much crime that I think there was as much crime as there was, there was probably just as much not reported because there was a feeling that reporting it didn't do anything. 
So gunshots were common, burned out cars were common. And, um, you know, that, that's a tough, that's a tough place when you think, when I think back now, it's the same as then you would go to some jobs and you would just shake your head and say, um, what a terrible situation that when you'd see good, hardworking people and trying to raise a family in that environment and all the obstacles that they had. So when you look fast forward 20, 30 years later on what the city has turned into and the growth and still obviously um, we have pockets of problems and we still have poverty and a lot of issues, societal issues, but New York City has really just been turned around. And uh, we, have, we have our obstacles this year for sure. Um, hopefully, hopefully, uh, I'm not a bad luck charm, you know, but, um, it's been a tough year, but New Yorkers are resilient. We have, um, we have a great police department and we're going to get out of this. It's just a matter of, um, you know, I think taking care of some small things, things are always a little dark, um, but we need some, yeah. some fixes. We need, uh, you know, to start getting the ship moving in the right direction, but we'll get there. Well, you know, I, I, as you mentioned, I mean, we've really come an incredibly long way since the, the battle days of the 1990s. I grew up in, in Brooklyn uh, in a neighborhood that's now quite gorgeous, um, but wasn't so much, uh, you know, when I was uh, a young kid. You know, it, it, when we think about just how night and day um, the city's sort of 30 year trajectory ha has become, what would you say are the, you know, maybe the two or three kind of most important tools or tactics uh, that, that were utilized by not just the NYPD, but by the criminal justice system more broadly that helped kind of bring that change about and, and make life livable uh, in so many more parts of the city for so many hardworking families? Yeah, well, well on the policing side, I, I think I have a unique perspective because uh, for a number of years, Going back, I, I ran the Comstat, so I, I saw both sides. I used, as a young lieutenant, uh, I attended Comstat, and it wasn't an, uh, a fun place to be back in the, uh, that was 1998, I think, was the first time I attended a Comstat. Um, Comstat came in in roughly 1994, 95. Um, I attended first time in 98, and, and then years later, to be trusted by Bill Bratton and put in charge of running the Comstat. Uh, I kind of came full circle. There's no comparison. I, I think that when I look back and, and you look at back when crime was so rampant in the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s, because I grew up in Queens, um, there was a lot of low hanging fruit in those early years. And I, I think the biggest change was the mindset of, uh, yes, we can do something about this. And I think that the police department led the way in many ways uh, in taking an attitude of, you know, it doesn't have to be this way. We can do better. And over years then of, of taking affirmative steps and dealing with some of the smaller issues in crime and smaller issues um, then became parts of larger overall strategies that were put into place. Um, and, and over the years really transformed the streets. Uh, that, that's, that's number one. It, it was the little things. It was the mindset. It was the, the feeling that the police can make a difference. Um, and, and you started to see then other partners in law enforcement. You started to see prosecutors. I mean, we didn't do it alone by any stretch of the imagination. But in those early years, there was a lot of low-hanging fruit. Um, I think Fast forward 20, 25 years later, when I started to run Comstat, it was a different time. So we needed different strategies and we started to use technology more 
And it was coming out of a period of um, different societal beliefs about mass incarceration. And, and we, we had to get um, a different mindset. And, and I think that when you stand here today and look back, that's one of the frustrating things from my view that we have evolved over time as a police department um, in terms of changing. Sometimes we've made mistakes, but we've also recognized sure. those mistakes. Um, we consider ourselves a reforming agency and we're having a great debate take place right now across the United States about law enforcement and policing in general. Um, and, and many people are coming up to us um, and saying, well, you, you need to do things differently. You need to reform and here's some things that you need to put into place. And when we look at that list of reforms that we have to do, uh, we come back and say, well, we actually did that already. Um, so I, I think policing is a bit of an evolution. Um, it, it's not something that you put a plan into place and, and carry out the plan. It, it's something that you have to, have to be constantly evaluating because what works today may not work tomorrow. Uh, in fact, I can guarantee it probably won't. You, you, laws are changing. Societal attitudes are changing. The environment around us is changing and we have to be just as nimble. So um, I think you're seeing some of that right now. Uh, different laws being passed, tools maybe being taken away. But, um, you know, you, you're not going to put your hands up in the air and say we can't do it anymore. Just this morning at this desk, uh, I chaired a meeting with some uh, great minds in the police department on, OK, what are we doing? How we, what are we going to do to drive the violence back down? We know we have a pretty significant spike of gang violence in parts of the city. Um, right. You know, we will adapt and we'll, and we'll continue to push it down. Yeah, I mean, getting into that 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 uptake, I mean, it's it's you know, it's no secret this is on the minds of everyone. Um, I'm sure that it's a major concern of our audience here uh, watching live. I mean, through August 16th, murders in the city are up 30 percent, shootings are up 82 percent. And this past June was apparently the worst on record since 1996 for that month. Now, even if you look at the two-year increases, they seem to be uh, uh, right around the same. And so, you know, as you mentioned, a lot of that violence is concentrated in in relatively small parts of the city, um, and probably you know being committed by a relatively small cohort of bad actors. Um, but I have a couple questions here. One is: Is it fair to say that what we're seeing now is more than just a blip? Uh, and if it is, you, what are what are kind of the driving forces of that? You know, you you, you said you mentioned uh, chairing a meeting, you know, developing strategies about that. But the, before you get to strategy, I think you have to identify the source of a problem. Does, does the department have a, a sense of what that might be? Yeah, and it's uh, boy, this is this is uh, complicated. Would be an understatement, Raphael. I, I think context is important here too. You brought out some of those numbers. In the early 90s, we had 2,200 murders. We had 5,000 shootings a year. Um, at the peak, Rikers Island back then, um, I think the peak was about 21,000 prisoners in Rikers Island. Uh, so a lot of crime, a lot of, in response to that, a lot of policies and incarceration. Uh, they drove down the crime, certainly. And then you, you fast forward decades, literally, and I took over, um, I came into this building in, geez, 2011 or 12, and, and we were looking at shootings in the range of 12 to 1,300 roughly a year, I think. Um, 
one of the things I'm probably most proud of is how we developed strategies in this new day and age to really use data to identify who's doing the most crimes. Um, you know, taking CompStat to probably a new level with technology and data and um, putting systems in place and, and breaking down silos internally and sharing information to really identify patterns as quickly as possible. Also to recognize that arrests are meaningless without meaningful prosecutions and ultimate outcomes. Um, you know, because we don't want to make 10 arrests of the same individual, we want one arrest. And we want that arrest to stick and we want that person to be, if it's appropriate, incarcerated. You know, so convictions and working with prosecutors better. And, and over those four or five years, we, we got to a place where we drove down incarceration, which is lost. We drove it down significantly in, in New York City. Um, we drove shootings down from over 1,000 to under 1,000 to under 900 to under 800. We drove homicides down under 300. Right. Um, we, drove, we drove index crimes down under 100,000. And these are, these are numbers, but they're really people. You know, we, right. you know, we got the precision piece so good over the last four or five years here, where we, we drove the incarceration in Rikers Island last year down to about 7,000 people from a peak of 21. So right. that's the good news. You know, ultimately, really precise in, in getting New York safer and having less people in jail. So that's the lead into this year. The first major thing I would put my, you know, and, and there's a lot of different things that took place. Um, challenges, you have to adapt to challenges in the laws, but the, probably the biggest one that took place last year was the, the, the bail reform law in New York State. And, um, you know, Lord, there's been so much said about this and people dig their heels in on each side. But I think if people are fair, Number one, when I talk about bail reform, I always make the point, we were for reforming bail reform because we don't think it's appropriate for somebody to be in jail because they don't have money and somebody else gets out of jail and they don't have money for the same offense. That's not right. The way that it was meant to go, and there was a lot of different pieces in the bail reform legislation that people don't even understand. So, you know, it changed discovery rules. It changed uh, the rules for what laws, what penal law charges can you even ask for bail? And if you can right. ask for it, you have to ask for the least uh, restrictive manner. So it really, everything was done and designed in a manner that would lower the incarceration rates. That's ultimately how the law was crafted and it was very effective. Um, it also did things that people don't realize that we're dealing with today where it, it instead of having the police department having policies on who can be issued desk appearance tickets for minor crimes and we make those decisions and say well we'll give a desk appearance ticket for a low level theft but if you do that same crime over and over many times we may make a decision that you're not going to get a desk appearance ticket anymore you may have to right. go see a judge that was taken out of our hands and that was legislated and we're dealing with the repercussions of that um and, and some would argue that's exactly what we meant to do, and it's a good thing. Incarceration came down. I think my, my main response to that would be 
we need balance. And when what what happened was when that law was signed and judges and prosecutors started to react to what was coming January 1st, right. you, you saw a, a pretty significant, about a, I think it's been a while since I talked about this, but I think it was about a 20% drop in the prison population jails in New York City, Rikers Island, in one month. So from November 30th to January 1st, 20% of the jail got put onto the street. And again, I would argue context. When there was 21,000 people in Rikers Island, there was a lot of people that were swept up. When we had reduced it to 7,000, we were getting more and more to a core group of people that were responsible for the most crime in New York City. And when you let 20% of those out in one month, I would ask the people that advocated for that, what was put into place to ensure that they would not be reoffending? What right. social programs? I, I hear the term supervised release. Uh, Lord, I'm tired of hearing it because I think it's a buzzword at this point. What was really done to provide supervision and alternatives to those individuals that would give them the best possible chance to live a different life. So, so what I hear you saying really is that, you know, the department's position is not one that is uh, opposed to reform, um, rather that you can actually continue to police well and effectively by being more precise in how you deploy resources and get more bang for your buck. However, um, it is necessary that the other parts of the system are kind of working with the department to ensure you know, that, that the few folks on whom the department is concentrating are actually seeing consequences. And you know, we started off the, the discussion by talking about some of the differences and similarities. Um, one thing that I do see you know, as, a, as just a, a more casual observer of, of this sort of uh, issue is that I, it seems to me that what we're seeing a lot more of is these repeat offenders who are getting arrested for these higher profile offenses, shootings, homicides, uh, who have pretty extensive rap sheets, who are out on parole, um, out on bail awaiting you know, disposition of a, of a pending case. Um, yet, yet you know, we, we do seem to have uh, a little bit of, of disagreement between the department and, and some of the city's prosecutors in terms of how to approach um, incapacitating some of these kind of repeat customers where, you know, we've, we've, we're seeing a lot more, um, you know, pretrial diversions of, of gun offenders, for example. Um, we're seeing uh, lower sentences being sought. We're seeing, um, just yesterday, actually, in, in, in the, the New York Daily News, Cy Vance published an op-ed uh, arguing that we should not bring back broken windows and that we shouldn't ask prosecutors to pursue lower level uh, offenses, even if that person is is repeatedly blowing their their second chances. And so, you know, a couple questions that, that come to mind here is, is how can the police department be maximally effective without uh, the kind of support that you're talking about from the other parts of the criminal justice system? In, in other words, do some of these decarceration efforts that are sort of efforts aimed at decarceration for its own sake, do they risk eroding some of the benefits of good policing? And, and is, there, is there something the department can do about that? Or do we really need more collaboration uh, along the lines of what we saw uh, during the great crime decline? Yeah, that's, that's, a great, that's a great observation, everything that you just said. I will say that I'll start from this point. 
um, when you look at the five prosecutors in New York City, and then we have a special narcotics part, and we have an Eastern and a Southern right. District, uh, but I'll stick to the five local prosecutors. And even I'll expand it beyond to, uh, you know, whether it's defense attorneys or advocate groups, I, I think we all want the same thing for the most part. We want to see safety. We want to see programs that work. Um, certainly there are differences of opinion at times, um, but I think the overall there is a very good working relationship on multiple levels, really down to whether the work actually takes place to a lower level than me, um, between the police department and different units in the, for example, Brooklyn or Manhattan DA's office or the Bronx, Queens, Staten Island. Um, are there differences of opinion? Yes. Do we all want the exact same thing and work together very effectively nearly every single day? Yeah, that's the, that's the case too. Um, but I, I think you hit on something where when you talk about the entire system, um, I did an end of year review of crime statistics a couple of years ago. And I'm probably going back about four years. And I, and I talked about what a successful year we had that particular year. And I made the statement that it, it was in Brooklyn. I said, I believe that the next future, like seismic gains in crime reduction in New York City, if everything else stays equal, is when we really get it right looking at the entire criminal justice system. And I think that the mistake a lot of people make is talk, talking about crime or statistics and they say, NYPD, what do you think? The NYPD is, is a driving force and will take the lead, but we're one component. So you really have to look at what happens then from the arrest, the decisions on how to prosecute the arrest. You mentioned pretrial diversion. When is it appropriate? When is it not? How do those decisions really affect crime? Which which programs work and which don't? Because it's 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 logical to think that some programs work better than others. And then going beyond that to when we make decisions about probation, how do we monitor individuals? How do we make sure that people that are responsible for the most crime are held accountable? Accountability doesn't have to mean behind bars but maybe it's an effective program in probation where they really um, can change behavior. Accountability is key here, but between probation, parole, and all the different pieces of the system, how they work together. I'll tell you that there is a lot of collaboration. I mean, in the CompStat meetings that take place today, in the if Jack Maple was alive and sitting here today, you know, he would be probably pretty impressed on how we've shifted over the years. And we spend a great deal of time in those meetings now talking about individual people that are committing significant amounts of crime and how the different pieces of the system work and can work together to fix what affects New Yorkers. And so that type of work does go on. Um, it's something that is, um, you know, a work in progress, uh, I would say. And, and, and I think that, um, you know, we all want to know what system works the best. Um, right. Whether we're diverting someone to, you know, drug treatment or, uh, or an anti-violence program or any of the others. So it, one of the 
Yeah, you mentioned that there's a lot of collaboration, that that there's a lot of agreement, while there, but there are also some differences of opinion. And you know, again, as an outside observer, it would seem to me that one of the sort of core differences of opinion surrounds the issue of public order and its importance uh, to the overall crime-fighting mission of an organization like the NYPD. Right, a lot of energy gets devoted to crime statistics, like shootings and homicides. A lot of attention gets paid to things like riots. But one of the lessons of New York's crime decline that I took away from uh, you know, one of the Manhattan Institute's most noted scholars, George Kelling, uh, and, and he worked on this issue a lot with people like James Q. Wilson and, and put, put his ideas into practice through, through Bill Bratton, um, was that public order matters. If people see disorder in their street, they're going to internalize that psychologically. That's going to affect how they engage with the community, whether they engage with the community. Um, and when we see sort of disorder prevail, we see streets get surrendered um, you know, to criminal elements over time. And so, you know, what I want to get from you is how important is, pu you know, public order maintenance going to be to the future of, of policing in, in New York City? And, and how do you sort of prioritize that and recognize its importance as an issue while, again, we have, you know, the sort of dedication to not pursuing uh, these charges when they are leveled? Yeah, I, I think um, I think it is very important. I, I think it remains. Certainly, New York City is in a different place now than 20 or 30 years ago. Um, it, this brings up conversations about broken windows, and, and people have very strong beliefs uh, on that on multiple sides, right? And, and some people take a couple leaps, if you will, right to incarceration. But to me, broken windows is really about um, something that you alluded to. It's about order. It's about paying attention to the small things. Um, I think that one of the things that we've done over the last six years is give our officers options and, and you know, uh, make them make them more aware than ever that, um, you know, when I ran Comstat, one of the things I used to say frequently was, you know, when somebody calls up and complains about something, that doesn't mean you have to write a summons. It doesn't mean you have to arrest someone. But the one thing it really does mean is that you have to address the condition. Like we have to be responsive to people uh, that live and work in New York City. And and that's, that's to me, neighborhood policing at its core. Uh, being responsive, developing that relationship with the people that we work for, and making sure that when there are issues, we address them through a wide range. Uh, it could be having a conversation with people and issuing a verbal warning. It could be um, issuing a, you know, these days it's a non-criminal civil summons because that in many ways has been taken away from us legislatively. But um, right. it, it, it's something that it, it is not going away, I don't think. Um, it's something that, you know, at times we can improve on, to be quite frankly, uh, where we've um, moved away sometimes and, and you know, the balance is, Raphael, that while we have to pay attention, obviously, to the, the, the more serious crimes first and foremost, there, at times there's a relationship between these minor, low-level order maintenance crimes. And, and we, we also recognize that we don't want the low-level crimes unchecked to, be, to become then the more serious, significant crimes and lead to shootings. And sometimes we see that as well. You, know, you 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 touched on something really important that I think uh, I want to sort of transition into, which was that you know the NYPD has a responsibility to respond to the concerns of of communities, and I think um, you know 
you are probably hearing uh, things in, in two different voices, right? It's, it's no secret that, that one of the challenges that the department faces as an institution today uh, is, is the enormous mm -hmm. amount of public anger uh, that, that has kind of come to the surface, uh, particularly in the wake of George Floyd's death. Uh, under the knee of a former Minneapolis police officer, Derek Chauvin. But but even before that, right, it seemed like there was a, a heightened sense of, of anti-police sentiment uh, kind of fomenting in the city. Right? We saw, for example, the anti-fair evasion enforcement protests calling yeah. for the removal of police from the subways. Um, you know, you've spoken very forcefully about the killing of George Floyd. You've expressed empathy uh, for, for the, the message that Black Lives Matter, which is something that I, I think should be axiomatic to to absolutely everyone that said though you know at at, at both the, the state and city level you know you mentioned we've, we've had a host of reforms just adopted even recently in the wake of george floyd's death you know more than 10 laws signed by governor cuomo we've had the city council pass the diaphragm bill but we've also had you know some voices from the community calling for things like defunding the police um you know uh, we've we've we have not seen the kind of you know, organized demands for more policing in the wake of the increase in violence, which is something that I think runs counter uh, to what a lot of us I expected. So, you know, what I want to start by asking you is, is, you know, what are you and others in the department hearing from New Yorkers on the ground that you are encountering on a day-to-day -day basis? Is is there a gap between the kind of defund rhetoric and, and what uh, these troubled communities uh, that we see in the crime data actually want from their police? Yeah, I, I wow, you absolutely. The answer is yes. I, I think that there is uh, at times a um, a disconnect, you know, um, between uh, what the communities want and what you read about. Um, and that's not to say that there's not, you know, many of the things that you brought up. Um, I think there's some longstanding issues with with distrust of the police. Um, with wanting better service from the police, um, you know, um, wanting to be treated equally and fairly. I mean, and, and those are things that we, we are in 100% agreement with um, and, and strive to uh, get better at. Um, and, I, and I don't think it's choose one or the other. I think that when you see something like that, what happened in Minneapolis, um, I, I think everyone would agree and should agree that it was, you know, heinous to watch somebody die like that, that didn't have to die. Um, but that doesn't mean you can't support the police too. I think you should call out what you see um, and you can support the police. And, and I think it's, you know, it's just such a unique year that we went through. Um, I, I think there is a lot of raw emotion, uh, justifiably. But I think we're in a different place than we were a couple months ago, too, even just a few short months ago. Where we are right now, this is what I hear on the street every day, and I believe it. Um, when you hear defund the police, um, I, I do not believe that that's what people want on the street. And I'm sp specifically talking now about people of color. Um, they rely on the police department. They will call us out when we were wrong 100%. And I think that's a good thing because they, they hold our feet to the fire and make us better. Um, but we have great relationships that we've been nurturing and building um, for years. And um, I think it was just such a unique point in time. I also think a piece of it, to, if I was going to be honest, which I am, 
uh, is that people were scared to come out and say they that they support the police because as soon as they did, they would have protests outside their house and be shouted down. And I don't think that's healthy for anyone. I think we're I think we're better than that. I think we live in a country where we should value everyone's opinion, and and we should have uh, healthy debates, and we should sit across from adversaries and have those debates civilly, and, and look for common ground as opposed to screaming. And maybe I'm guilty of that sometimes myself. Um, but overwhelmingly, what I see is people supporting the police, asking for more police, upset about what they're hearing and seeing in the media and telling me, quite frankly, that that's not how they feel. And I, and I think that that's something that we're working through right now. Um, I think that ultimately, you know, cooler heads will prevail and will come back you know, that pendulum in, in law enforcement swings from one side to the other. We need it, we need it a little more firmly in that middle area where we, we hear each other. We're not too um, tough on crime, if you will, uh, but we're not soft either. We're, we're, we're fair, we're working together, and we're, and we're hearing and seeing each other. You know, you, you you mentioned it specifically from communities of color that, that you're hearing the opposite of what I think people might think if they just read the newspapers or watched cable news. Um, and there's actually some data behind this. A recent Gallup poll showed that a majority of black Americans across the United States do not support defunding uh, their local police department. But still, there is this kind of dominant narrative in the media that, you know, the police pose an existential threat to communities of color. and you know, as the son of a former NYPD detective, as, you know, uh, someone who has many friends and family members uh, within the department and, and within police departments around the country, I know for a fact that these are people who take these jobs specifically to help communities often that they come from um, because they have a, a streak of public service that that runs through their hearts and, 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 and in their families. And, you know, despite all that, we, we see you know, this rhetoric continuing to kind of bubble up. Um, and my question is, is how does that affect the morale of, of the rank and file? And and is does that pose a unique challenge to you as a leader of a department to not just, you know, have the task of keeping crime under control, but of also corralling, uh, you know, a department and keeping them from, you know, maybe falling into, uh, uh, or, or falling victim to a sense of fear that they don't have the support uh, you know, to get out of their cars and be as proactive as they should? Yeah, no, great, great question. Before I answer it, I just got to say, uh, I agree with you and what you said and, and coming out of my last answer, but I think we have to be honest too. And, and there are times where we got to be um, quicker and we got to be more transparent uh, on dealing with discipline and, and rooting out, you know, you hear this term, the bad apples. And, and, and I, almost 30 years in law enforcement, um, I've worked with the best people that you would ever work with. And I see firsthand what they do every day. And they don't call, they don't ask, you know, who's calling when that 9-11 call comes. Uh, they're running towards the danger and trying to help people. But with that said, it's a tough job. And not everyone, um, through their own actions, have exhibited and proven to us that they deserve the right to wear that shield. And when that's the case, we got to make hard decisions and get rid of people that that are tainting it for the 
overwhelming majority of officers. So that, you know, that to be fair, that has to be said too. I think we can do better. I think that the public across the country probably doesn't understand how many officers get fired. And it's a small number, but it's significant. And, and if the public understood that, if we did a better job of getting that information out, I think it would change the narrative a little bit. To your question, um, it's an incredibly difficult time. Uh, I think about uh, the men and women that put on the uniform every day. Um, there are always ups and downs in this business and it is cyclical to, a, to an extent, but I've never seen anything like I've seen this year. And if you think of just the craziness of it, three, four months ago, we were talking about having ticker tape parades for first responders. Nobody's talking about ticker tape parades anymore, right? And how quickly it turned. Um, you know, we lost 46 members of this department, uniform and civilian, to COVID. And they've come to work every day in extremely difficult circumstances. Now we're looking back and we know a lot more about this disease. And thankfully, the the rates of people getting sick is down. And more importantly, the people getting treatment, I think where the doctors have gotten a lot better uh, in terms of knowledge on how to treat. But there was a period there, and I know you know this, Raphael, like back in March and April, when you were literally scared to come to work. Well, members of the NYPD were coming to work every day and answering the call. And out of that period, when many are still working from home um, in, in the public and private sector, to have that incident happen across the country and just in the almost a perfect storm, what it came out of it. And um, those protests were extremely difficult for the men and women of this department, um, physically, mentally, verbally. Um, I think they, they really handled themselves you know, where there some mistakes, there's always mistakes, but overwhelmingly with incredible proficiency, with um, professionalism. And, um, you know, now we're, we're kind of inching towards hopefully really uh, better times. Um, it's a tough time. I worry about the officers. I worry about all eight and a half million New Yorkers, to be honest. And I, I do know, though, that it's how we're going to get out of this is together. Every time that we speak and talk to each other, whether it's uh, talking about problems that we have or just saying to each other, thank you for what you do, um, I, I think is, is a positive. And, and I, I, I'll take the opportunity, anyone listening now, mail, calls, emails, and everything else, offering um, thanks for the officers. Thank you on behalf of the entire NYPD because it does mean a lot. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.